Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, October 11th, 2013. one of those eclectic programs. We're going to be all over the map again. Good, bad, and ugly. And by the way, I have been able to uh, watch the documentary that's going to be played in uh, Britain uh, next Saturday. Uh, at Will's thing. Uh, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which: help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, as I just said, um, on the nineteenth, you know, the covert Messiah. Uh, thing is happening out there in Great Britain, and I cannot believe these people have garnered as much media attention as they have. But the reality is this: it's it's really just cheeseball scholarship, if you can even call it scholarship. And I documented, I uh, kind of chronicled a little bit of that yesterday in in showing the ability to shoot this stuff down, just using you know like real evidence, that kind of thing. Um, but um, I, I was able to poke around the internet. Uh, today, doing some research, uh, digging a little bit deeper on what Atwill is up to. Uh, this is Joseph Atwill. And um, it was able to find on YouTube the entire documentary that they're going to be premiering. Uh, I don't know how you premiere something that's already out on the web on the 19th of uh, October, next Saturday, out there in uh, Great Britain. And, oh, man, what a... What a <sighs> miserably bad documentary talk about conspiracy theories i mean total i mean basically it's just total conjecture and conspiracy theories and uh, he's cracked some kind of typological code he thinks that he's that's what he's done and in order to demonstrate that uh, jesus never existed and that really really what the the gospels are are are, uh, you know typological codes uh, that chronicle the life of uh, the uh, the Flavian Emperor Titus, and that uh, what Jesus really is is uh, is Titus masquerading as uh, as a Jewish Messiah, and therefore, if you worship Jesus, you're supposedly worshiping uh, <clears throat> the Flavian Caesar Titus. It's it's really uh, just bad scholarship. But what we're going to do uh, the second half of this first hour today is I'm going to play for you audio from the conclusion of that documentary so you can see what 
the goal is. What's the goal of all of this? You know, they they're not putting this out there because they're engaging in you know helping to help people understand objective truth. No, there's an actual theological and I would even say political agenda that goes along with the. Uh, uh, this uh, Caesar's Messiah uh, documentary and and uh, Atwell's book itself, uh, which is of the same name, but um, so I'll, I'll play for you the conclusion, and then you know in the in the weeks ahead uh, we will pick this thing apart and demonstrate to you that uh, actually, like I've already pointed out, I mean, since he says that uh, the Gospels were not written until after the fall of uh, Jerusalem and the destruction of Masada in seventy three A.D., I mean. If you can demonstrate that there were Christians prior to 73 A.D., uh, well, that blows everything apart, doesn't it? Anyway, so that's how we'll be doing things today. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Again, very eclectic program. We are going to start off with a good segment. Um, Somebody on my Facebook wall, an intrepid listener on my Facebook wall, posted a very good uh, a short little video by R.C. Sproul of Ligonier explaining uh, that uh, doctrine that uh, Luther, you know, used the the uh, Latin formula simul justus et peccator. Now, this kind of runs to the heart of uh, something that has to do with a right understanding of our relationship to God, and you know, it, right now in the here and now, are you saved? Yes. Um, are are you justified before God? Yes. Do you still have a sinful nature? Yes. <laughs> so the idea is uh, the the Latin phrase that Luther talks about. And this is a great way of understanding of rightly understanding uh, Romans chapter seven that we are simultaneously justified. That means to be declared righteous and sinners at the same time. Simul justus. At the contour. So we'll be listening to a uh, short little video by uh, R.C. Sproul explaining that uh, wonderful little doctrine. And then we're going to take a hard left turn into Bizarro World and we're going to do a T.D. Jakes, Money Grubbing Televangelist update. And you know, kind of ask the question what does T.D. Jakes teach? about what the purpose of the Bible is, you know, in particular portions of it. You, you kind of have to hear this to kind of get what I'm saying. And so we'll be listening to about eight, eight minutes of, uh, of a message delivered by T.D. Jakes entitled, Your Day Is Not Over. And it's just kind of the introduction to this message that he's giving, and it's way out there. Way, way out there, but fits with a lot of the stuff that we've been playing recently uh, where people somehow totally miss the entire point of Scripture. Then we'll take a break, and when we come back from the break, I will be playing for you audio from the conclusion of the video, of the video documentary that's going to be played on the 19th of October out there in Great Britain. Yeah, the name of it is Caesar's Messiah, and and show you... What the end game is? What what do these folks who are attacking the historicity of Christ and claiming that the Flavian uh, family of Caesars are responsible for you know basically writing the Gospels as a piece of political religious propaganda to uh, basically <laughs> compete with the uh, Jewish concepts of um, of well you know of of militaristic messiahs at the time? So. Yeah, we'll play that for you. And then in hour number two, like I told you, we're going to be all over the map today. We're, we're going to take another – after that, hour number two, we're going to take a hard right, and we're going to end the week off with two very good sermons. Two very good sermons. I'll, I'll give you the, the information about them 
when we come back from the break. But uh, that's how we're going to spend the uh, the program today. And so, since I don't have any RC Sproul music, although I'm you know I'm thinking you know RC Sproul. I mean, this is a guy who's a scholar, scholar. You know, if you you were to introduce RC Sproul, it wouldn't be with rock and roll. It'd be like with classical music, maybe Yo Yo Ma or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's <clears throat> yeah, something to that effect. But uh, the the name of the uh, video we're going to be looking at is called "What Does Simul Eustace Epicator Mean?" And uh, without any further ado, here's R.C. Sproul to answer that question. Here we go. Perhaps the formula that Luther used that is most famous and most telling at this point is his formula, simul justus et peccator. And if any formula summarizes and captures the essence of the Reformation view, it is this little formula. Simul is the word from which we get the English word simultaneously. Or it means at the same time, justus is the Latin word for just or righteous. And you all know what et is. Et is the past tense of the verb to eat. <laughs> Have you et your dinner? No. No, you know that's not what that means. You remember in the death scene of Caesar, after he's been stabbed by Brutus, he says, et tu Brute, then fall Caesar. And you too, Brutus, it simply means and. Pecotter means sinner. And so, with this formula, Luther was saying, in our justification, we are at one and the same time righteous or just and sinners. Now, if he would say that we are at the same time and in the same relationship, just and sinners, that would be a contradiction in terms. But that's not what he was saying. He was saying, from one perspective, in one sense, we are just. In another sense, from a different perspective, we are sinners. And how he defines that is simple. In and of ourselves, under the analysis of God's scrutiny, we still have sin. We're still sinners. But by imputation and by faith in Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is now transferred to our account, then we are considered just or righteous. This is the very heart of the gospel. Will I be judged in order to get into heaven by my righteousness or by the righteousness of Christ? If I had to trust in my righteousness to get into heaven, I would completely and utterly despair of any possibility of ever being redeemed. But when we see that the righteousness that is ours by faith is the perfect righteousness of Christ, then we see 
how glorious is the good news of the gospel. The good news is simply this. I can be reconciled to God. I can be justified by God, not on the basis of what I did, but on the basis of what's been accomplished for me by Christ. But at the heart of the gospel is a double imputation. My sin is imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed to me. And in this twofold transaction, we see that God, who does not negotiate sin, who doesn't compromise his own integrity with our salvation, but rather punishes sin fully and really after it has been imputed to Jesus, retains his own righteousness, and so he is both just and the justifier, as the apostle tells us here. So my sin goes to Jesus, his righteousness comes to me in the sight of God. So there you go. That was just brilliant, concise, to the point, and had a great gospel punch. That's what we like to hear here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, I, I warned you that uh, we were going to be uh, doing, well, a, kind of an abrupt uh, left turn. And uh, since we're going to be doing a money-grubbing televangelist update, I think it's important that uh, that we, <clears throat> I warned you uh, that we're going to be making these abrupt turns today. Very eclectic program. And uh, since we're changing gears, just get ready for the exact opposite of what you just heard. And to introduce our next segment, here's Dr. T. Money, money, that's our televangelist, money-grubbing televangelist update music. Now, what you're about to hear is a message from T.D. Jakes, and the name of the message is Your Day Is Not Over. And this is just the lead-in to the sermon 
But already you can tell that the trap is baited, is probably a right way of putting it, based upon his view of what the purpose of Scripture is and, uh, you know, what he's going to do with it. Now, so what you're going to hear is some hermeneutical gymnastics done by a man who's probably one of the most gifted communicators on the planet. And unfortunately, uh, to go with his gift of communication, he doesn't also have an equal gift of the right handling of God's Word. In fact, quite the opposite. So without any further ado, here's T.D. Jakes to introduce this message of his entitled, Your Day Is Not Over. We're paying attention now, specifically keying in on what's his view of Scripture, and notice we'll notice how he handles it. Here we go. May God bless you on this particular day as he has never blessed you before. I just believe him for your day. And if you don't mind, I pray for your day today that God would just strengthen you and bless you in a supernatural way. I'm excited because I have an opportunity to share a word with you that may be contradictory to everything that you see going on in your life. You may feel like you missed your chance, that you messed up, that you blew it, that, that your day is over. Well, you're wrong. This message says your day is not over. God has a plan for you, a comeback, a turnaround, a moment where he brings equilibrium and stability to the adversity in your life. Your day, your day is not over. What? <laughs> um, okay, not sure what he's doing there. But this is kind of again. You get some dream destiny, some major purpose, some, and your day's not over. You you can accomplish it, kind of thing. And we've heard this message a thousand different ways from Tuesday and the seeker driven movement and the charismatic movement and the New Apostolic Reformation. The you know, word of faith. I mean, it's all over the place, except for historic Orthodox Christianity. Here we go. Ecclesiastes, the great. Think of the great writer, the great sage, identifies a very unique association between purpose and times. Ecclesiastes. It sounds like a train wreck there. Ecclesiastes. So apparently in Ecclesiastes, um, it, it des describes a con unique connection between purpose and time. Hmm. He says that there is a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. Yes. There is a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. In other words, time is born with a twin called purpose. <laughs> In other words, time is born with a twin called purpose. The text that he's referring to, by the way, is a very familiar passage. You familiar with that song, For Everything, Turn, Turn, There is a Season, Turn, Turn? You know, um, yeah, it's from Ecclesiastes, sorry, Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3. Listen carefully. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under, this, under heaven, a time to be born, time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, a 
time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So when you put that passage back in context, it's not saying what he's saying. He's just making reference to and hasn't actually read the passage. And now he's making this weird statement. Let me back this up again so you can hear it, because this then forms the foundation for his launching off point from here. Uh, well, so we continue. Here we go. And a season for every purpose under heaven. In other words, time is born with the twin called purpose. And it is a waste of time to extend days without purpose. Yeah, that's not what Ecclesiastes 3 says. God gives us days then for purpose. The psalmist David said, teach. Did you see how he did that? <laughs> well, there you go. Ecclesiastes, ecle- sorry, Ecclesiastes 3.1 <laughs> is all about, who knew, you know, that, uh, that, see, there's a time for purpose. That's what he did with this. So notice he makes a reference to the text, kind of fools around with the text, makes a statement and then builds on the statement. And now we're to a conclusion that's actually not in the text itself. But this isn't the main part of what I want to focus on. Let me just back up just a little, and then we'll keep going forward. Notice, pay attention to what he thinks the purpose of Scripture is as we go through this soundbite of his. The psalmist David said, teach me to number my days, O God, that I may know how frail I am. Teach me to count my days, to, to have birthdays and weeks and months so that I can realize that I am temporal, that I have a limit to how long I can meander, to stop me from wandering, to give me focus, to give me tenacity and commitment and resilience. Teach me. You don't learn that at first. It takes a while to number your days. I guarantee you, you're going to waste a few of them before you begin to appreciate I only have a certain amount, and that becomes important. Dates are important. Let's us give us some sort of reference as to where we are in regard to accomplishment of purpose. I was wasn't feeling too good the other day, and I said something to my wife, and my wife, my wife is adamant about this. And I said I'm not feeling too good. I, I want to take an Advil or something, and she said, I, "You know, I, I just look for anything that says Advil and swallow." She started snatching up. No, no, that has an expiration date. I would have never known it because I wouldn't have checked the date. I just swallowed the pill. She said, no, it's only good to this date and it's this date over here and you shouldn't take it past this date. If that is true about medicine, then you must also realize that it is true about life. 
um, none of the biblical authors um, had access to Advil or drugs that had a particular use-by date. So I don't know. I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes 3 has nothing to do with Advil and medicines that have an expiration date. And so now, apparently, that now there's a principle here that you got to apply to yourself. We continue. Not only through the metaphor that I discussed, but from the scriptures itself, you have an expiration date. Yeah, it's called the day that I die. If you're going to fulfill your purpose, you have to do it within a certain window of time. time. Yeah, that time when, you know... You're still breathing. Um, again, um, Ecclesiastes three doesn't teach anything about me having a purpose, and that you know, and that you know, there's a t- time twin thing going on with it. Time, purpose, purpose, time, time, purpose, purpose, time. So the 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 the, the enemy of this world doesn't have to kill you if he disassociates your sense of purpose from time. Ah, wow, that clever devil. (laughs) Who knew? Just renders you inoperable. The Advil was still there, but it had not been used in time. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little demonic laughter, wasn't it? Let me back that up. (laughs) Yeah, that ultimately creeped me out there. There are people in this room who are oblivious to purpose and time. But there are many of us who were born with the sense of urgency that we were put here to do something. We, we knew it. We knew it many times. Yeah, boy, how important you must be. We knew it even as children. We knew it even in our foolishness. We knew it even in our wildness. We knew it even in our predicament. We knew it even in our propensity to procrastinate. We still knew that we were put here to do something. That knowledge is what pulls you up out of the gutter of your own human debauchery. It stops you. Not that you're any better than anyone else. It's just that you sense that there is something higher calling you beyond your human proclivities through which a sense mm-hmm. which you say I, I got I got to do something sometimes you don't even know what it is you just know you got to do something sometimes you yeah don't- you got to figure out what that something is though you bet you better ask God to tell you you know through speaking to you through a whisper or a still small voice or something right what is this theology and how is it that this has come to reign as the core theology in evangelicalism? This isn't what the Bible teaches at all. You don't know where you're going. You just know where you've got to go. You, I, I don't know where I'm going, but I can't stay here. I, I don't know who I am, but I figured out who I am not. This is not me. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. That's no, not me. For this task, God has selected Joshua. Now, Moses, to me, is the mighty pastor of the Old Testament. There is none like him. He's a mighty prophet. He's a mighty pastor. He is selected to lead the wandering sheep of Israel through the wilderness of confusion. Deep through the wilderness of confusion. Notice he's already allegorizing the wilderness here. Hmm. Okay. So Moses is uh, set to... um, 
lead the people of Israel through the wilderness of confusion. And he's kind of setting up the story of Joshua here. Pay attention to the details as to why God, according to T.D. Jakes, isn't going to allow Moses to be the one to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Listen to this. Listen to what he does. Detoxing them from their servitude, bringing them into an absoluteness of sonship. Took 40 years for them to begin to recognize you are not owned, but owners. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, which passage of scripture says that the children of Israel had to realize that they weren't owned but owners? I'm not familiar with any of those passages. Entire generation had to die out because they were born into an owned situation and they were being translated into an owning situation. And when you have been owned, sometimes it's hard for your mind to recognize that you have transitioned from being the property to the property owner. Took about 40 years. A lot of wandering, a lot of dying, and now God said, Moses... No, 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 okay, I'm going to pause here. Remember our uh, principle that we uh, used earlier this week, uh, the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. That being the case, what is the reason given in the New Testament as to why the children of Israel died in the wilderness? Was it because they failed to make the transition mentally from being owned to being owners? Is that what the New Testament says? Well, Jude verse 5 makes this clear. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, the Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Yeah, that's right. They were destroyed because of unbelief, not because they were wandering through the wilderness of confusion, having a difficult time making the transition from going from being owned to being owners. So there's a lot of bad theology packed in here, but I'm going to back this up just a hair so that you can then hear the reason why, according to T.D. Jakes, Moses wasn't the one to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. We continue. From being the property to the property owner took about 40 years, a lot of wandering, a lot of dying, and now God said, Moses, you were good to bring them to this point, but now that they are owning and not being owned, I need Joshua because Joshua is a fighter. Uh huh. Do you remember that passage from the Old Testament? Um, where God says to Moses, "You've done a great job, but um, let me let me play the quote so that you can hear it again." Just, I mean, just... you were good to bring them to this point, but now that they are owning and not being owned, I need Joshua because Joshua is a fighter. Mm. Do you remember that passage? Are you familiar with it? I mean, where God says to Moses, um, "Hey, listen, now that they're owning rather than being owned, hey, listen, I need Joshua to lead the people of Israel into uh, the Promised Land because he's a fighter and you're not." Does you you remember where that is? Second Hesitations, chapter eighty-six, I think. You know, something like that. Um, <laughs> it's not in there. It's not in there. That passage isn't in there in the Bible at all. T.D. Jakes just made it up. Just literally just made it up. That dialogue doesn't exist. But there is a passage that does explain why Moses isn't the one leading the children of Israel into the promised land. You can actually find it in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Numbers. That's right. Numbers chapter 20. 
I'll start at verse 1. Now the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there, and now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Oh, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and, the, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle." And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them, he showed himself holy. So what happened? God said to Moses, tell the rock, speak to the rock to yield its water. Moses didn't speak to the rock. He struck it. And the first time he struck it, no water came out. You know what he did? He struck it again. This time the water came out. But because, according to the Lord, he did not believe him to uphold the Lord as holy in the eyes of the people, he was therefore punished and said he would not be the one to bring the assembly into the land into the promised land. That's the reason why. So that's what scripture says. Here again is what T.D. Jakes said. About 40 years, a lot of wandering, a lot of dying. And now God said, Moses, you were good to bring them to this point. But now that they are owning and not being owned, I need Joshua because Joshua is a fighter. That's blasphemy, isn't it? He's added to scripture, completely changed the story. But all of that's to set up, then, this idea of what's the purpose of the story of Joshua, then. It's one thing to believe something and wander, but when you get ready to possess it, you've got to fight. <laughs> I, I'm going to say, it's one thing to believe something and wander, but when you get ready to possess it, you've got to fight. You cannot be led by a Moses when it's time to fight. You got to be led by a Joshua because Joshua had a fighting instinct. Mm. So you can't be led by a Moses when it's time to fight. Mm -hmm. This is all nonsense. It's false doctrine. This is lying about God and lying about his word. Fighter. If you're a fighter and you're somebody say, I'm a fighter. It, 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 that, 
doesn't necessarily mean that, 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 that I'm going to put up my dukes and punch you. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to push you out of your seat. It does mean that if you get in between me and what God has promised me, don't expect me to lay down and let you take over. Are there any fighters in the house? Fought to get up. Fought to finish what you started. Fought to get in the college. Fought to stay in the college. Fought to keep your mind against opposition. You're yeah, um, none of this has anything to do with what the Bible really says. This is false doctrine, filling people's minds with garbage. You, you, you're not there because you weren't in a fight. You had to fight every step of the way to get where you are. And if you're not a fighter, you're not going to finish. You got to be bad. You got to be down with it. You got to be ready come hell or high water. Mm-hmm. You got to be ready come hell or high water. What does this have to do with the Bible? What it really says? Absolutely nothing. Joshua is in a fight. He's in a fight. And he doesn't exactly know what he's doing. Because sometimes when you're a fighter and you're fighting to accomplish your purpose, you don't exactly know what you're doing. One time he pulls his sword on the angel of God. He's fought so much that anything coming in his direction, he'll tell you. Oh. Being able, he, he says to him, are you for me or against me? You, when, when you've had to fight all of your life, sometimes it's hard to make friends. Because anybody that gets in close proximity to you, you draw your sword out and say, don't start nothing out. Yeah. What does this have to do with scripture again? Nothing. The idea here is, oh, well, you, you, when you uh, get ready to read the book of Joshua, you, that's the blueprint for how to be a fighter in your life, to take possession, to learn how to be an owner rather than being owned, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Filling these people with absolute nonsense, doctrinal nonsense. The Bible doesn't mean any of this. And the proof for that is the fact that in order to get to this message, he had to lie, literally lie, make up stuff about what the biblical text says. And that's not rightly handling God's word. That's deceiving. And that is what sends people to hell. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we will be listening to a little bit of audio from the conclusion of the Caesar's Messiah so you can see what the end game. What is that video all about? Well, stay tuned. We'll tell you. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Bird cage 
Theater presents Church Day Select. And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. So, uh, do you know why I called you in here today? Am I in trouble? Oh, no, 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 of course not. We're just worried about you. Is this about my tithes? You know, I- I'm so sorry. I forgot the $5. Well, you hate me now, don't you? Oh, no. No, you've been very good about meeting your tithe quota. Besides, if this had been about your tithes, we would have sent someone to your house. I just wanted to discuss your attitude because some of the elders have started to talk about it. My attitude? Oh, yes, your attitude. You see, we're all about our Congress having audacious faith. But we've noticed that you seem to be having difficulty being on Jesus during services. Um, are you talking about the Holy Ghost, Hokey Pokey? Is I not dancing right? You know, I, I tried practicing at home, but when I put my whole self in, I fell over and injured Fluffles. Who is Fluffles? Well, uh, he's my cat, and after I fell down, I didn't know if it was breathing. Okay, we see you straight from the top. Look, you don't have to dance during the services. But you could at least start singing. I mean, what's the point of having jumbo screens with sing-along lyrics if people aren't being audacious and using them? When I was younger, I had this bird, and I decided to take it outside with me and start singing to it, and a hawk dove down and snatched Muffin from my finger. Oh, dear. Uh, I'm so sorry about Muffin. But let's get back to the present point. If you don't want to sing or dance during the service... Then I guess we'll let you have make that choice. But if nothing else, would you please be more audacious and just do the hand motions? Well, last year, I had my gerbil outside and his hamster ball, and... Uh, the interview is not going as expected. Well, I-, I was practicing hand motions, and my bracelet caught a glare in a driver's eye, and the car swerved, and it hit Mr. Cuddles. He flew into the mouth of an octopus living in the sewer... Apparently, he didn't taste very good, so he spit him back up into the street where my neighbor ran him over with his lawnmower, which broke the hamster ball, but not Mr. Cuddles. So then Mr. Cuddles escaped, and then a dog thought Mr. Cuddles was a chew toy, so he chewed on him. But Mr. Cuddles didn't like that, so he survived, and I got him back. Well, that's finally something positive. I bet you anything, Mr. Cuddles would love for you to be more audacious in church. Well, but he died a week later from rabies that he got from the octopus. Uh, Well, I think we'll have to schedule a second meeting for you sometime in the next... Never. I I mean months. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long... Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, you can't teach sound doctrine by teaching false doctrine and teaching God's word. The two don't work together. They work against each other. Ultimately, false doctrine works against the gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Now we're going to move along here. And what you're going to hear is the conclusion of the documentary that they're going to be airing in uh, on next Saturday. Not this coming Saturday, but next Saturday, October 19th in Great Britain for the Covert Messiah th- Conference all day thingy. And uh, if you want to hear what the, what what's their purpose, what's their reason, what's the you know what is it that they're trying to really promote? It's not just that they're they're really not about oh we got to tell the truth you know and and help set free people free from the lie about Jesus because they engage in um, let's just say scholastic chicanery if you would. Uh, there I mean their arguments are so bizarre and indefensible it's not even funny. Plus, we've got evidence that Christians existed long before the Flavian family ever took power in Rome. Uh, but uh, if you want to know what their conclusions about, what's their end game? What is this really promoting? 
Well, I'll let them tell you. Here's the conclusion from Caesar's uh, Messiah, a Roman, uh, Jesus is a Roman invention documentary. Here we go. How early Christianity first arose. Our scholars have shown that the Gospels were not the product of primitive Jewish fishermen. Rather, they are a sophisticated literary work combining religious ideas of the day with Roman political perspective and power. Actually, your scholars are not scholars, and no, you did not actually prove that. Joseph Atwell's research reveals that reading the works of Josephus concurrently with the New Testament shows that the events of Jesus' life were not historical, but rather all of them are dependent on the events in the military campaign of Titus Flavius. Jesus Christ was an allegory for the Roman Caesar Titus, the Messiah of the Roman Empire, the Roman son of a god that Christianity was set up to worship. I certainly don't want to undermine the positive things in Christianity. I'm happy to admit that there are positive things in Christianity and in other religions as well. What's at issue here are the historical claims of these religions. Traditionally, religious dogma has forbidden the examination of historical discoveries or the inclusion of certain scientific findings in their teachings. Mm, dogma, is, it's, it's holding humanity back. That's what they're saying. Asking their followers instead to blindly believe as they say, not as the objective facts may show. Now, what you don't see is, you know, blindly accept what they say. They pointed to, they actually showed this, uh, uh, one of the paintings from on the Sistine Chapel of God creating Adam, you know, with God's finger touching Adam's finger. So blindly believing what they say, you know, like that the world was created by God rather than evolved. We live in a time, perhaps it's a new intellectual renaissance, which is getting fed up with many of the structures that we live with and which is recognizing major frauds at the heart of our financial markets and the heart of heart of our industry. And uh-huh. So getting frustrated with particular institutions that, you know, that we're all living with, you know, our financial markets and stuff. Uh-huh. And the plug is being pulled on them. And my view is that we have yet another fraud, the biggest of them all, and it's a fraud at the heart of Christianity. And it is a time for whistleblowers to come out and to make this information available, not just to scholars in academic journals, but to have it widely available to anybody who wants to know. Really, which scholars and which academic journals are buying into this uh, theory that... uh... The Flavian family invented Jesus. I'm not familiar with those scholars and journals that uh, say, oh, yeah, this, this stuff is totally on the level. It's helpful to hear a wide diversity of voices in order for people to arrive at their own conclusions. And the theories brought forth by our scholars are a part of that diversity. When they hear that the Jesus story is a myth, people feel that you're taking something away, but you're really not. You push people and you go, why do you believe in historical Jesus? Often people will go, well, you know, the Bible or something. But when you go, well, have you studied it as an historical document? Have you looked at the evidence? They'll go, well, no. Yeah, actually, I have. No, I haven't. So that's not the real reason. The real reason when you push people is, well, I have a relationship with Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's what I don't want to lose. And that's a really good reason to be a Gnostic and a really bad reason to be a literalist. 
All right. So according to them, I mean, if you're saying, oh, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, okay, embrace Gnosticism. That's what this this, uh, video is ultimately promoting, Gnosticism. Gnosticism that will lead to a kind of global peace between all the religions, you know, think of it as kind of like a one-world religion. Listen, listen carefully to what they're promoting. The Gnostics, as well as pre-Christian pagan mystery schools, believed that the myth of the dying and resurrecting God-man was an allegory to be used for personal growth, to die to their lower nature and arise to their higher nature. The literalists took control of the original myth and shaped it so it would take the power away from the individual and place it into a central authority. Rediscovering the original myth gives people the freedom to choose the beliefs that truly serve them. Okay, some Christians have developed their personal faith to the extent that Christ is this energy or force or power within them. This is how they have interpreted the story now. The story has become again what it actually began as, an allegory. I have no issue with the Christ within. I have an issue with the, with the church militant. Got to get rid of that. As long as you have that personal Christ within you thing, you know, you're an enthusiast. Um, he doesn't have a problem with that. It's that those guys who out there are saying that Jesus actually is, well, the, the historical, true, incarnate Son of God who died on the cross and rose again bodily from the grave, the God who created the universe and is calling all men to repent of their sins and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins uh, you know, so that they will not uh, suffer eternal wrath uh, in hell. No, no, those guys got to go. But as long as you believe, oh, Jesus is my shining light within me, my little personal spirit guide, oh, well, we won't have a problem with that. What threatens humanity is organized, regimentized religion on the march. Yeah, did you hear that? What threatens humanity is organized religion. Yeah. So this what they want, global Gnosticism, no organized, dogmatic, historical Jesus, not that one. That's a threat to humanity. Taken so seriously that you will act out its worst precepts. If we examine all the religions of the world, we find that there is a common thread that connects all faiths and all people. Mm, So now, what's the solution to this threat to humanity, organized dogmatic religion? Well, if we just examine all the different myths of all the different religions, we can see the common thread and we can all embrace each other in one big ecumenical hug. And it is from this connection that we can make the choices that have now become so critical to our future. I like to focus on the origins of religious ideas. And it turns out that they're very unifying underneath uh, all of the divisiveness that we see on the surface. It would be extremely helpful for all of humanity to realize that there is this underlying unity. And those origins are basically nature worship, the study of the sun, the moon, the stars, planets. This is all what humanity has been 
looking at, of course, with great awe and reverence for thousands of years. And it's extremely important, I think, for us to get back to those roots. The destruction of the planet is also directly tied to religious ideas. Yeah, see, the destruction of the planet, it's tied to religious ideas, particularly the idea of the historical Jesus and salvation found only in him and, you know, his physical, historical resurrection from the dead. That See, that's leading to the destruction of the planet. It can help to restore balance to the planet in a very, very profoundly significant way. The very survival of humanity depends on viewing history from a new perspective. So the survival of humanity, we've got to, we're not going to survive as a species on this planet until we get rid of organized dogmatic religion, namely the belief in the historical son of God. Yeah, this is now a matter of humanity's survival. You Christians, you need to adopt Gnosticism, or we're going to have to do something to to you in order to ensure the long-going survival of humanity. That's the message of this movie. That's the message of Caesar's Messiah. We continue, though. So that we can be clearer on the historical facts and still honor the myths that offer us the greatest wisdom. It's uh, what the myth, what the poetry says that matters, uh, not what actually actually happened. So each new generation, whatever you say, is going to hear the myth. And that's what is true for them. And uh, what follows is uh, uh, the actual history is much too complex for the average person to ever get their head around. Though the actual history is complex, and we may never know all the facts about what happened 2,000 years ago, the voices of our scholars are contributing to an ever-widening dialogue and the growing paradigm shift being witnessed all around the world today that can lead to a more empowered and enlightened humanity tomorrow. Yeah, you want a more empowered and enlightened humanity? Well, chuck the historical Jesus and just embrace the myth, the dying and rising myth, and worship nature and become a Gnostic. This is really important for our culture, to understand where Christianity came from. And this is direct evidence. You can actually walk this path and come to this conclusion. You can know that Christianity was an invention of the Romans. It was done to pacify their subjects. And this is important because it gives us a different way of understanding government how government operates, the tools that government uses, the purpose that government has for the various propaganda apparatus. Evangelical Christians are getting away with debunking facts as mere theories, even subjects like evolution. But they provide no evidence for their position other than to simply cite religious dogma. And if you look at the influence that dogma is having in the media today, you can easily see it is increasing. I would like to challenge these extremists to consider the... Po- N- Notice, Christians are extremists now. If you're a Christian, you're an extremist. You believe in the historical Jesus and the dogmas of the New Testament? You're an extremist. You are a threat to the sustainable future of humanity. This is what this video is promoting. possibility that my findings are correct... Though there is much good in Christianity, we have to understand how rulers have used it to control us and how they are still using it to control us today. 
I hope citizens will be more skeptical when they hear an authority figure using faith to interpret laws or a belief in Armageddon to create governmental policies. The Flavians encoded a secret message into the Gospels, which we can now understand in a new light. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So there you go. That's the goal. That's the agenda. The, the, well, the very future of humanity depends on getting rid of the historical Jesus in order to have a sustainable future, in order to free ourselves from the shackles of these institutions and laws that are binding us to Christian dogma that assumes that Jesus was a historical figure. Well, we're not going to make it as a, as a species until we get back to nature worship and just embracing the Christ within and enjoying Gnosticism rather than this idea that there was a historical Jesus. Oh, those those Christians have shackled us. They've shackled us. We've got to get rid of them. We've got to stop them. We want a we want a bright and glorious future, and the only way we're going to achieve that is to get rid of them. How dare they tell us that God's going to judge us? How dare they tell us that there was a historical Jesus and that we're going to be judged by him if we don't repent of our sins and trust him? No, it's the other way around. We've got to rid the world and the planet of them if we're going to achieve some bright, new, glorious, unifying of all religions future. That's what Covert Messiah is all about. It has a very, very specific future and engages in rhetoric that basically says, you Christians, you're worse than Muslim extremists because you are responsible for creating and setting up the entire system of institutions that shackle all of Western civilization. And all of this was done by the Flavians to control via propaganda. So it's in order to take that next step in humanity, we must rid the world of this thing that's holding us back with its dogmas and its... And, and, Christians in politics who are making laws based upon this dogmatic view of Scripture. That's what this is all about. So um, here's the question I have for you. Chicken and egg question. Do you think this video is the thing that's going to cause people to hate Christians or is this video because of the growing hatred and animosity and growth of evil within our culture. I think it's the second. I think this is this was is the fruit of what's taking place in the wider and greater culture and also shows that uh you know you don't need to actually have any real evidence to back up your position. You just throw out some conjecture, a conspiracy theory and because people are so uneducated 
because people have no clue how to think anymore. A lot of people in the society are going to believe this and believe ultimately through the words being expressed here that they're already feeling inside of them that the world is going to be a better place when we silence and eradicate and get rid of dogmatic Christianity and how it's shackled us and imprisoned us to its institutions and its ideas and we can finally be set free and have a great and glorious humanity and planet filled with peace once we get rid of historic Jesus. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Turn to the right, sharp one. We'll end up with two good sermons for this week. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. (laughs) Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about Think Geek. 
At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end off with two good sermons. Yeah, and just by way of noting what you were listening to at the end of hour number two, that's the rhetoric. That's the rhetoric that will lead to flat-out open persecution of dogmatic, organized Christians. Pray that it doesn't spark as a result of covert messiah but let's change gears here We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we'll be listening to two of them, uh, come to us via Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Pastor uh, Ernie Lassman presiding. The first sermon we will listen to is based upon the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. The name of the sermon is Strive to Enter the Narrow Door. Sermon number two comes to us via Mount Olive Lutheran Church. And this is uh, Pastor Ted Geese presiding. And uh, his sermon is based upon Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, the name of his sermon, actually, I don't think it has a name. Oh, yeah, here is. The name of his is What's in a Name? <laughs> you notice the irony there. So what we're going to do, let me go ahead and kill the music. What we'll do is we'll first listen to Pastor Lastman's sermon. And since in a Lutheran uh, uh, service, uh, the they, the gospel text is already read by the time the pastor gets to the pulpit. Uh, yeah, that's it's it's actually you know the, all three passages: the, an Old Testament text, an epistle text, and the gospel text are read earlier prior to the sermon. I need to read to you the gospel text here for the Gospel of Luke again. This is based upon the Gospel of Luke, chapter thirteen, verses twenty three through thirty, which reads: He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, and someone said to him. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, Well, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in, in, in you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and, south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Here's Pastor Ernie Lastman and his sermon entitled, Strive to Enter the Narrow Door. Here we go. 
Grace, mercy, and peace be from God, our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon for this morning is based upon our gospel lesson, Luke 13, verses 22 to 30. It's on the back of your bulletin for further review. My fellow redeemed in Christ Jesus. In our gospel lesson, someone in the crowd asked Jesus if only a few people are going to be saved. Now, why would someone ask such a question? What's the point in asking that question? What difference does it make whether a few or many are going to be saved? Well, you learn as a teacher that people often ask what's called leading questions. In other words, this man had already answered this question for himself, and now he was asking Jesus to see if Jesus' answer agreed with his answer. Now, if Jesus had directly answered this question to the man and said, yes, only a few are going to be saved, perhaps this man would have responded with the common response, well, that's not fair. How come only a few are going to be saved? Doesn't God want everybody to be saved? Now, through my many years of teaching the adult information class, I hear similar questions year after year. And I consistently get a question like this one. Well, if Jesus is the only way to heaven, what about all those people who haven't heard about Jesus? Another leading question. Whoever asked that kind of question has already answered it for themselves, and they're asking me to see if I will agree with their answer. But as we look at this in the big picture, the problem is always human sinfulness. And specifically, I've learned over the years in my own life and teaching other people, in our sinful arrogance, we sometimes think that we're more holy than God is. We're more fair than God is. We're more just than God is. So did you notice Jesus refuses to directly answer his question? He doesn't answer it directly. Why not? Because the question is a bad one. Because it leads people to sit in judgment of God. And what difference does it make? That's none of our business. That's God's business. And then Jesus turns the conversation very personal and practical. As he says to this person and to us this morning, but you, you strive to enter the narrow door. In other words, Jesus turns the question around. Instead of asking such a leading question, we should rather ask ourselves, will I be saved? Saved from what? Well, those popular subjects, sin and death and damnation. Boy, that will draw a crowd, won't it? Of course, those things aren't very popular in these days, not even in churches. We don't hear too much about sin and death and damnation. Why not? Because our culture thinks such things are way too harsh, way too negative. How are you going to grow a church preaching stuff like that? And certainly way too judgmental. People don't want to hear about negative things about themselves. They want to hear only good things about themselves. You know, practical things, helpful things, useful things. How they can live a more successful and happy and fulfilling life. You know, the power of positive thinking and all that kind of stuff. That's what many people want to hear in their churches and 
That's what many people, church, what, uh, what many churches deliver. What's that they preach and teach? But you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that kind of preaching and teaching won't help people with sin, won't help people with death, and won't help people with damnation. Okay, let's start with the obvious, something that nobody can die, nobody, I mean, nobody can doubt and people won't argue too much about, okay? We're all going to die. Okay, what's the next step? Well, it gets a little harder. Why do we all die? Because of sin. Rebellion against God. Living for self instead of living for Him. Okay, and what happens after death? Well, because of sin, God's judgment. As we read in Hebrews... And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Chapter 9, verse 27. But, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of that judgment. Why not? Because God sent His own Son and condemned His own holy, beloved Son in our place He died for my sin. He died for your sin. He died for the sins of the world. As that wonderful Bible passage, John 3, 16 reminds us, for God so loved the world, yeah, this world that hates him and is a rebellion against him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because with Jesus' death upon the cross, God's justice against sin was satisfied. And now this message of God's forgiveness and eternal life is brought to the whole world by His church by preaching and teaching and baptizing and administering the Lord's Supper. Because these means of grace actually really give But Jesus Christ is one for the whole world. And so those who trust in him and believe in him need not fear that judgment day. This was true even in the Old Testament when you know your Bible properly. In the Old Testament, people weren't saved by being good people. They were saved by faith. Faith in the Savior who was yet to come. That's why Jesus mentions in our gospel as in Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. And he says that all people who trust in him will be with them in that new world. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, and people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Verse 29. But there is more to the story for sure. No, not everyone will be saved. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, he will speak these sad and terrifying words to all who did not trust in him. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And then they will spend eternity in hell where Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound very good. And the only difference between those who enter that kingdom of God and those who do not are those who enter the narrow door of Jesus Christ, as our Lord Jesus himself says in John's gospel, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
Doors are important, although we don't give them a lot of thought. But, you know, if you ever caught yourself in a burning building, doors would be a lot more important to you. I mentioned this before. If you're ever in a burning building, you would strive to find that door that would save you from that fire. Oh, not just any door would work. You don't want to open the door and find a bathroom. You don't want to open a door and find a closet. You don't want to open a door and find just another room inside the building. No, you'd want to find that door that goes outside, far, far, far away from the fire. And so it is when it comes to salvation from sin and death and damnation. Not just any door would work, not just any God, not just any religion, not even trying to be a good person because we can never be good enough. No, Jesus is the only door. The only door to the one true living God. The only door to eternal life. As he says in another passage, and John, you know very well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Chapter 14, verse 6. Now that's pretty clear. And so then all, only those who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will be saved. And this is not complicated. You know why that's true? Well, there's many reasons. But the simplest way, only Jesus Christ has died for your sins. No one else. Only Jesus Christ has canceled your debt to God. No one else. So then we come back to our question. Will only a few be saved? Well, Jesus turns it around on us, and everyone who asks that kind of a question, he says to each one, you strive to enter the narrow door. You strive. Forget about that other stuff. You strive to enter the narrow door. And that means to believe what God says. And that means to believe what we confessed this morning, that we are sinners, deserving only God's wrath and condemnation. It means to confess, indeed, we are guilty as charged, no excuses, no ifs, ands, or buts. God is right. We have lived our lives for ourselves. We have broken his laws and thought, word, and deed. And so no one can enter that narrow door without repentance and confession of sin. But not even that is enough. Remember Judas? Oh, he felt really bad about his sin. So bad he went out and committed suicide. Why? Because he thought his sin was too great to be forgiven. Not true. Jesus has died for all sin. And so that means to enter that narrow door of Jesus Christ also means to believe that because of his sinless life and his death upon the cross, he has reconciled us to God. Our sins are all forgiven. We are free. All is well. We have nothing to fear. Nothing. The Greek word that's translated in our English this morning as strive also gives us our English word to agonize. To agonize means to have intense feelings that flow from deep concerns, deep commitments, and deep desires. And so if we found ourselves in that burning building, we would agonize. We would strive to find that one door that led outside to safety. And so it is with Jesus Christ. To strive to enter through that narrow door means to live each and every day repenting of our sins confessing them to God and each and every day believing 
that because of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again on our behalf, that sin is all forgiven. No strings attached. And it also means because we know that kind of unconditional and complete love and grace and mercy in our gracious God who gave his own son for us, we also each and every day want to live a life that's pleasing to him, as we said at the end of our confession this morning, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And so then to strive to enter the narrow door of Jesus Christ means we cannot treat him lightly. We cannot treat him as a hobby, as a convenience, as if he's a part of our life. No, he is our life. Nothing is more important than Jesus Christ. Nothing, and our deathbed will remind us of that. But we need to know that long before while we are still alive because Jesus reminds us on the judgment day, it will be too late. Do you realize a day will come when that door will no longer be open? One day that door will close. Certainly the day we die, that door closes. Where we spend eternity will be set in stone and determined forever simply by our relationship with Jesus Christ. There are no second chances after death. There are no do-overs. The door to heaven will be closed, as Jesus says. Once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me. Can you imagine standing before Jesus Christ on the judgment day in all his glory as God? Can you imagine any sadder or more terrifying words? And he says there'll be some Jews from his day who will say to him, Hey, hey, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. True. But you didn't believe in him. They didn't enter that narrow door. They rejected him. And so on the judgment day, he will reject them. As he says in Matthew's gospel, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And so, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this simply means now is the time to believe in Jesus and to live for him each and every day living under his grace. For the day is coming when it will be too late. So then, in conclusion, are only a few going to be saved? Probably. But why ask that question? What difference does it make if it's few or many? What's the point of asking that question other than to sit in judgment of God and his love and his justice and his fairness? Instead, Jesus has us to redirect the question. Will I be saved? What does Jesus Christ mean to me? Because God sent his own beloved son to do absolutely everything for us to be saved from sin and death and damnation, living a sinless holy life in the place of our sinful life, suffering and dying on that cross, even being forsaken of his father, to cancel our debt to God and to give us forgiveness. And on the third day, being raised from the dead to give us eternal life in a new world. This is why Jesus is the door, the only door. The narrow door. And it's still open. As long as we are alive, it's open. It's open until he comes again. And we simply enter that door 
by believing, simply trusting in what he promises in his word, in our baptism, and in his supper. And whatever we experience in this life that's bad, whatever we suffer, whatever hardships that we may have in this life, it will all be forgotten, not even thought of, when we and all who have trusted in Jesus will recline at table in the kingdom of God. Amen. And now the peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Sermon number two comes to us via Mount Olive Lutheran Church in in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. And it's Pastor Ted Geese. And the name of the sermon is entitled, What's in a Name? And it's based upon the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, which reads... There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, Hey, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. This is the text that forms the basis of this sermon by Pastor Ted Geese, Mount Olive Lutheran Church, Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. The name of it is What's in a Name? Here's Pastor Ted Geese. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good Christian friends. The name Lazarus means trust in God. Here Jesus tells the parable of a nameless man and the poor man named Lazarus. This will be the text for our sermon today, the Gospel reading. What's in a name? You've heard the line from Romeo and Juliet. You could probably even just say it right now with me. The one that Shakespeare pens. The words, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. In these words, Juliet argues that the names of things or people, that these things aren't important. The only thing that matters is what a thing is, what things or people are. But is this true? 
On the surface, this seems romantic, but I bet your name means a lot to you. I bet it even matters to you that Jesus knows your name. Today's gospel reading comes hot on the heels of last week's reading about the shrewd manager, where Jesus told his disciples that they can't serve God and money. The Pharisees, those rich, well-respected businessmen who were so looked up to by the poor in the community, had been listening in on Jesus as he taught his disciples, and they had ridiculed Jesus because they were lovers of money. For them, their good name was an important thing, and they wanted people to know who they were wherever they went. And while they believed in the resurrection of the dead and in eternal life, unlike others of that day, like the Sadducees, the Pharisees were still preoccupied with their wealth and were distracted from the true reason God gives wealth to his people. We'll come back to that thought in a minute. Now, Jesus told this parable, this story to his disciples following closely after our parable from last week. And it's fairly safe to say that the Pharisees are still listening in on today's parable. Like they were listening in on the one from last week. One of Jesus' disciples was John. St. John wrote the book of Revelation. And in it, he records the vision given to him from Jesus. In Revelation, we hear these words that so many find unsettling. Then I, John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These words from Revelation describe the final judgment, the judgment on the last day. The parable from today's gospel describes the intermediate state, the state between things now and at the end, between now and the last day. You can know this because the rich man is worried about his family that is still alive. He hopes his brothers would avoid the torment he is experiencing as time passes on its way to the last day. Interestingly, there is a tie-in with last week's parable here. Last week, Jesus said, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What does this mean? 
all money, all wealth will fail you on the last day. There will be no U-Haul behind you on your way to paradise, on your way to Abraham's side. Lazarus didn't take anything with him, and neither did the nameless rich man. Lazarus's riches were waiting for him in paradise when he arrived there because, as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what did Jesus mean when he said, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Use your wealth today to spread the word of God. For faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. In spreading the word of God today, you make friends who will receive you into the eternal dwellings, who will receive you into paradise. Look around you. Take a look. Here are these people with you. Look at them. You have friends here today that you will have forever. You have friends here today that you will have forever. You have friends here today that you'll have forever. This is fantastic and great news. Look around you. Look around for the ones who are missing because they have died in the faith. They have gone on ahead. They have gone on before you. And those friends, those friends will be there to receive you when you enter paradise with Christ Jesus. This is good news. This is one of the best things you can think of. One of the best things you can know. And this is fantastic news. And how is all of this even possible? It's because they heard the word. They heard the good news of Jesus preached to them. They heard that good news in places like this place right here, Mount Olive. This is what the unrighteous wealth, the money that you have in this life, can be used for to good purpose, to make sure a place like this exists so that people can hear that word and that they can be with you in paradise for all time, for eternity. This is good news. Now, getting back to the parable, basically, if the nameless rich man had used his wealth wisely and in the fear of the Lord, he and Lazarus could have been friends eternally. Brothers in Christ seated together at the table prepared for them. In order to have done this, the nameless rich man would have first have had to have had faith. He would have had to have believed. He had knowledge of God. He recognized Abraham. He was a Jewish person. But he lived his life without trust in God. Lazarus, the name Lazarus means trust in God. Does this trouble you? You think to yourself, I don't always trust in God. 
you think to yourself, I'm more concerned about my welfare than the spreading of God's word. You think to yourself, what about my name? Am I the nameless rich man or am I Lazarus whose name means trust in God? You think to yourself, I feel like there's a fight over my soul, over my good name, and I don't know who's winning. How can I know that my name is written in the book of life? How can I know that? The man Theodore Roosevelt, whose name you've likely heard of in this life, is said to have said, The one thing I want to leave my children is an honorable name. You have something better than an honorable earthly name, an honorable earthly family name. You have something better. In your baptism, you have a heavenly family name. You have been adopted by God the Father. You are now a brother of Jesus a sister of Jesus. Your name is your Jesus' name. Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, you are an heir to heaven with him. You are now an heir to the kingdom of God with Christ Jesus and a recipient of his name eternally. In Christ, you have the family name of God. And in your baptism, you have had God's name placed on you. You were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there's more good news for you. In the nail-pierced hands of your Jesus, there is a promise to be found. God says to you, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. All of these promises add up to your name being written in the book of life in heaven. And just as Lazarus in the parable has a name, you have a name too. And Jesus knows your name and died for you that you would keep it unto eternity. This gift is for all people, and we only have the time given to us in life to spread this good news. In death, there is no longer any opportunity to do mission work. In death, our future is fixed like the great chasm between the nameless rich man and Lazarus, whose name means trust in God. If you have five brothers, if you have five brothers, if you have family, if you have friends, and you want them to be in heaven with you, you'll need to work on them today because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You in your baptism, in your God-given faith, Trust and know that your Jesus has been with you and is with you and will be with you tomorrow. But there is a world of people who don't have this and need it as desperately as you need it. 
The forgiveness you have in Christ is for all people. Yet we live in a world that puts off spiritual things till later. That's for tomorrow. We live in a world full of people who have the name and they trample over it. They have a name and they have forgotten it. They have a name and they act as if they had no name in God at all. If you have ever trampled over your name in Christ, if you have ever forgotten your name in Christ, if you have ever acted as if you had no name in Christ, if this has been you, Repent. Ask for forgiveness from Jesus and you will have it. He forgives you. You are forgiven. You have his name. He forgives you because his name is on you. After more teaching from Jesus, the Pharisees later in Luke's gospel, in the next chapter, in chapter 17, asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Why does Jesus say this? He says this because the kingdom of God is ultimately revealed to you at the time of your death. Or if you are alive on the last day, on that day, it'll be revealed. This is when your name will be counted up. At the moment, it will be, at that moment, it will be too late to change anything. Take heart. You have a name in Christ Jesus. You have his name. And everything that comes with his name is yours. And he is at work in his church on earth to bring his name to a world without one. This is what we are doing. This is what we're about. This is what Jesus has trusted us, entrusted us to do. We lean on him and he works through us. We bring his name to others that they may have it on them too. You have this name. This is the most precious gift. Amen. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Take our minds and think through them. Take our lips and speak through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. For the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I don't need to add to that. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. 
Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious, historic, penal, substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.